last Sunday um, of this series. Uh, we'll actually complete it on uh, Good Friday as we um, meet at 6 o'clock on Friday for what we're calling a service of the shadows. It's an opportunity for us to come together and to dwell in that moment of death of the cross. And that's an important moment, obviously, in our life of faith and understanding that um, although certainly we know the life of Christ because of his resurrection, which we celebrate next Easter, we also want to be very aware that there was a cost for that life. And Friday's service, um, Good Friday's service, is a time where in our service of the shadows, we think about deeply what um, that, the cost of that was through the death of Christ. So certainly we want to welcome you here. If you are a guest, we, we would love to see you here on Friday or certainly next Sunday morning. If you're a guest here this morning, we, um, we really hope that you head out as you head out. Um, find the flags right outside the doors in the lobby. Meet us at our connection point. We have some, a gift that we'd like to give you as well as seek some information from you, have a conversation a little bit about what God might be doing in bringing us together um, as we see some of our new members this morning, what God might be doing to call you to be a part of the ministry here, because certainly there are lots of places where God has called us to work together for the kingdom of God. And of course, we'd like to just find out who you are, find out your story a little bit. Um, this morning, we're going to be talking about um, one of those words that, um, it's, very, it's a really loaded word, right? Despair. We're going to be talking about um, the power of that word in our lives and how that, that, that word despair manifested itself in God's word, especially in the time of Jesus' um, crucifixion while he was on the cross for those six hours. And for us to think about then, what, is, what do we get out of that? If Christ experienced the despair of separation from the Father for the sake of, of the people that he loves, what is the other side of that? What is hope? What is life? And as we explore this this morning, I want to welcome John Price forward. John is going to um, lead us in prayer as we seek to learn more deeply uh, and understand more deeply what God's word has for us this morning. John, would you lead us in prayer, please? Thank you, sir. Dear Lord, we come to you this beautiful Palm Sunday morning and ask that your presence descend on us and calm our hearts. Give us ears to hear as we listen to Brother Scott's message from your word and give him your words. As we hear Jesus' last words on the cross, as he paid the ultimate price for our sins and deliver us to deliver God's grace to all of us through your words. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, John. How many of you have been watching college basketball? Anyone? Um, the Elgersma family has been um, captivated uh, Sometimes, not all the time, we're not like slaves to the schedule of the NCAA March Madness Tournament, but we certainly have enjoyed at different times watching the, um, the games. And um, 
in all honesty, uh, we are biased. We are a biased family. And because we are biased, um, we are also celebrating. Because yesterday, uh, and I'm looking directly at one person individually, the University of Michigan earned their ticket to the Final Four next weekend in San Antonio. Yay! You're all supposed to cheer now. You're all supposed to cheer. <laughs> And um, it's, it's striking when you watch these games, just how drawn into them, at least we get. Um, of course, with this whole March Madness tournament, the, the college basketball tournament, if you've seen any of the games, you know that really anything can happen. In fact, in the first weekend of the tournament, something happened that had never happened before. The University of Maryland, Baltimore County, which nobody had heard of, except if you lived in Maryland, nobody had heard of University of Maryland, Baltimore County, ended up beating the University of Virginia. A number one seed got beat by a number 16 seed, and that had never happened in the history of the tournament. And if you watch the game, it was incredible because, of course, you look out in the stands and all these UMBC fans are just going bananas. I mean, they're a part of history. This is something absolutely amazing. And, of course, all the, all the announcers and all the people on television are going, this is incredible, this is amazing, these guys are playing so well, and it's so awesome to see this and be a part of history. But then all they had to do was move like five fans over. And here's this person wearing Virginia blue. And they ain't so happy. In fact, the word despair is a word that some of these folks would, would, would say describes their feelings at that moment. I mean, all of a sudden, all their hopes and dreams, they were the number one ranked team in the whole tournament. The plan was, I'm sure, for that coach and for that team, we're going to be playing three weekends in a row. We're going to be in the finals in San Antonio, Texas next Tuesday. <coughs> Excuse me. And we are going to be a part of history for the University of Virginia. And all of a sudden, UMBC, this little no-name school, shatters that dream. And if you saw the telecast, you saw tears streaming down the faces of folks, impacted to the depth of their soul, really, by a basketball game. Of course, that seems somewhat ridiculous to many of us, but imagine if you're the mom of one of those senior basketball players who had spent so much time and energy on basketball, how you might feel. Well, that's about basketball, but the challenge is, is that there are some folks who are going through much harder losses, much deeper pains, much more difficult stuff than losing a basketball game. There are people here this morning who either are walking through or have walked through some level of despair, some place where you feel like Hope is lost, at least in some area of your life. Maybe hope is lost in a relationship that you hoped. Maybe, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you hoped and longed for to be, excuse me, the person that you spent life with. Maybe a marriage that you had spent time, obviously, and energy and love and relationship in, and it didn't work out. And it's broken, or it was broken. 
And you remember those moments of tears where it was like there was not enough in you to sob. Or maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the death of a child for a parent. One of the deepest deaths or deepest pains that a parent can know. Maybe it's in a a diagnosis. You got that word. You got that cancer word. And that cancer word immediately, as it was uttered by the doctor in the office, as the prognosis, it was like someone took their hand and reached it into your chest and pulled your heart out. Maybe, Maybe it's something else. But almost all of us have known despair. We've known great loss. We've known great pain. And this morning, as we engage deeply into God's word, we understand that Christ, on the cross especially, perhaps at different points in his, in his ministry as well, if you think about places like the Garden of Gethsemane or the death of Lazarus or other parts of the Gospels where Jesus <coughs> excuse me, feels the pain or the burden of his ministry, you see that there are moments that I'm sure... Christ felt that level of loss and almost to the point of despair. In fact, we know that last, uh, in the last couple sermons, we've even talked about him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine the son who is deeply connected to the father, all of a sudden losing that relationship? We know he felt that level of despair. But if he felt that level of despair, then he has a, something to teach us about when we go through despair about when we're in that place and how we step and move beyond it through the power of his grace and his love in, his, in our lives. I, <clears throat> excuse me, got a frog in my throat. Is it possible for someone to grab me a water bottle from somewhere? Thank you, Brandon, I appreciate it. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. That's going to be about maybe in the back quarter of your Bible. If you find any of the Gospels or the Book of Romans, immediately following that, you're going to find the Book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We're going to spend time in God's Word there. We'll read the first six verses to begin. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God, for what we preach is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, who let light shine out of darkness? For God said, let light shine out of darkness, make his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest. This particular passage of text is a little bit more of a graduate level text. We're not talking about something simple here. When Paul is writing, this is his second letter to the Corinthian church, because we see obviously there's a first Corinthians, that means he wrote a couple letters to him. He laid out some of the more simple teachings, some of the basic teachings that they needed to understand. The second letter was a follow-up letter to really flesh out a lot of the stuff that they needed to hear with some of the complexity of faith. Thank you, Brandon. 
and some of the complexity of what it meant to be servants of the gospel of God. Now, something important, if you look at the first verse that we just read, what do you see right away that should cause you to ask a question? You see the word, therefore. And when you see the word, therefore, you ask the question, what is it there for, right? So, what is the word therefore, therefore? It is there to show us that what he said before. And if you look in verse 3, or chapter 3, what you'll see is that Paul is reminding them that there was a ministry before Christ came for God's people. And that ministry came through the law of God, the commands. So if you think Old Testament, Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston holding the big, you know, the big tablets of God's commandments, that was the old ministry. In a sense, it was saying, here's who God is. God is a righteous God who calls you to live into righteousness with him. But as you see Paul describe it, he's saying that that actually is a ministry that is unto death. Why? Because if you're about keeping everything right, how many of you have done that perfectly? Right? It's not happening. Right? God bless you, Dewanda. I know you. No, sister. No, sister. All right? We have, we're, it's impossible to keep. And because it's impossible to keep that covenant of righteousness, doing everything right, Paul is saying that veils God. It blocks us from understanding the fullness of who God is. So you see in our text that when we preach a get it right message, we're preaching a veiled message that leads unto death. And Paul is reminding them, but you have a different ministry. You have a ministry of Christ. And that ministry is a ministry of grace. That is a ministry where it says, if you mess it up, which you will, you have hope. And that hope is the resurrected Christ who has given you life by taking upon himself all of your sin, all that brokenness, all those moments when you feel like, I'm messing this up so bad. That's the thing that Christ took on himself on the cross and said, but I am the perfect lamb of God and I am enough. So in those moments of despair, when you and I are in those places where I am such a worm, I screwed it up again. I got into that habit again. I did that thing again. I hurt her. I hurt him again. I feel like I can't fix it. I can't change it. Those are the moments when we are able to say, Christ, in his time on the cross, took all the burden on us and said, I am enough, which means that we no longer can say that because we screwed it up, there's no hope. There is hope. But we need to live into and discover that hope. Because we have Christ, the gospel, and grace, we can, with truth and boldness, proclaim Jesus. And that's truth in the midst of our despair. But, let's be honest here, that can be fearful, can't it? It can be fearful to get into that activity. 
It can be fearful to get into that place where we're, in essence, saying, Hi, Cooper, I'm Scott. Good to meet you, buddy. Glad you're here this morning. Do you know Jesus? Because if you don't, let me tell you about him. I'm really excited about this time of year because it's Easter. And at Easter, we talk about a risen Christ who's given you life and given you hope. How many of you are prepared to go out and do that to some person in your neighborhood? You ready? Some of you are. God be praised. How many of you ain't? (laughs) A bunch of us, right? Because it's fearful. This idea of being in the face of somebody, and I don't mean in the face like going, I mean in the face, even speaking that truth directly to somebody who needs to hear it is something that for many of us Christians is something that scares us. There's fear there. I want to show you one of the most interesting clips that I have seen in a long time. This is a man named Penn Gillette. You may not know and recognize that name, but you may recognize something else. Anyone ever heard of Penn and Teller? All right. This is Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette is an atheist, professed atheist, atheist, militant atheist. He's actually gone on stage with pastors and debated his atheism and why he believes what he believes. But this morning, he's going to give us something challenging. Please. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the, um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we give those away. He had the the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show. And uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. And, I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and... Um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. 
And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say. Anybody feel like they just got punched in the face? How much do you need to hate somebody to not tell them about the truth? When we think about the fear that we have about approaching a coworker, a family member, a neighbor with the truth of the hope of Jesus Christ, when we feel that fear, for us to realize that what we can do comes from love, love of God, love of our neighbor. That sounds actually biblical, doesn't it? That we are willing to love our neighbor enough to move beyond our fear to a place where we, even an atheist like Penn Teller, who is like, I mean, he's stuck in the ground, put the flag up the flagpole and salutes it every day. Him saying, that was a good man. And he impacted me. What is possible that God might do when we are willing to move beyond our fear into love with sharing this gospel of Jesus Christ unveiled with our words 
and with our lives. Verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. Hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now why jars of clay? Now, maybe you have this. We used to have them. I don't think we have them anymore in our home. Kristen had purchased from like Home Goods or something like that some urns that looked like, you know, sort of old urns, and they were made out of clay. And if you have those um, uh, in your home, um, you, maybe you know what I'm talking about. We, have the, we had these urns, but we also had at that time like a five-year-old boy and put a jar of clay together with a five-year-old boy, and who's going to win that battle? Well, Troy is a soccer player, and Troy does all his ball stuff in the house. So eventually, that jar of clay, which was solid and strong or whatever, ended up, what, falling over. It didn't break, but had a big old crack in it. Because jars of clay are very useful, and they are strong for their purpose, holding stuff. They can hold a, a bunch of liquid. In fact, over the years, over ancient years, jars of clay were used to put any, anything in it, oil, wine, um, you know, water, anything that you needed, you could put into a jar of clay. But you also had to be wise and discerning in how you dealt with that jar of clay because it would crack if not treated properly. And friends, what we're hearing here in talking about jars of clay is that you and I have the capacity to do good for the kingdom of God, but we also have a level of fragility. Think about it this way. If you were to talk to somebody who's known you well, and they don't know Jesus, but they know you knew Jesus, and you were to talk to them at length about who Jesus is, how would you feel if they said to you, but I've seen you do this. I've seen you smoke. I know that you got drunk that one time. I see your crack. I see the brokenness in you. I don't know that I can believe your story. That's in some ways what Paul is talking about. He's saying, and he names all these things that we have. We're hard-pressed. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. Sometimes we're struck down. We are that jar of clay that has cracks in it. However, we know, what does God call himself elsewhere in the text? He calls himself the potter. And if he is the potter who makes these jars of clay, then he makes them for our glory, for his glory through us. And we don't need to fear that our frailty, our brokenness, that our, our sin, our whatever, is going to be sort of this limiter, this barrier. Perhaps it might be for a moment or two. 
But if you and I, as Penn said, live into goodness, live into caring, live into love for our brothers and sisters who don't know Jesus, it carries with it power. Over time, it transforms. But we have to be willing to enter into that work. Even though we are frail. Even though we are jars of clay. Verse 10 says this again. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Right there, Paul is looking back even to the previous section where he talked about the commandments. And he's saying, friends, you don't need to be in despair in life because no matter what happens, Christ is in you. Even if you're in the hardest of hard moments, even though somebody has said something to you that cuts you to the core, even though something that has happened has dropped your your stomach down to your feet because there's hurt and there's just that feeling of loss, Christ hasn't left you. Hear me here. In those moments of despair, in those moments of fear, in those moments of weakness, in those moments even when some of our addictions, some of our sin, some of that power comes into our life for us to hear, Christ has not left you. He still is with you, even in those moments. Because that's what six hours on the cross does. The six hours on the cross of Jesus for Jesus to be there equips you and I with his presence regardless of our circumstance. He is with us always even till the end of the age and for us to hear that when despair comes knocking on our door we can say I'm crucified with Christ. It is I no no longer live but he who lives in me and because he lives in me I can face the world around me. But I got a challenge for you because read verse 11 again. For we who are alive are always being given to death for Jesus' sake. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're maybe new to this whole Christian thing or you're checking it out, I'm an honest person. I try to be honest as best as I'm able. Following Jesus is a death means you're putting, I'm putting myself to death every day. It's not an easy life. I don't promise you ease and comfort simply because you're a Christian. In fact, I promise you almost the opposite. If you're truly following Jesus, you're going to get beat up. You're going to have hard things. You're going to get knocked around sometimes. Suffering is going to come your way. If you read all of Scripture, you're going to see it over and over again. If you're wondering whether bad things happen to good people, just read the book of Job. See what it says there. And when we think about being willing to allow that death to come, dying to ourselves, it says in the text, we are willing to allow ourselves to die to ourselves. Why? Not because we like death, not because we're morbid, not because it's like this self-suffering that we long for, but because when we allow ourselves to die, Christ more fully lives in us, means the world around us sees more Jesus. So even in the midst of our despair, when we're broken and hurting, that is an opportunity for death to come 
And if death comes, even more so for life to come through Jesus Christ. Verse 13 through 15. How am I doing on time? Not very good, Elgers. I'm going to keep moving. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Now note the context of verse 13. If you look it up, if you have a Bible that has footnotes, where does it point you? Anyone know? It points you back actually to the Old Testament. Psalm 116. If you know Psalm 116, if you want to turn back, look at it for a moment, you're going to see. It's a psalm of lament. When it says there, I believe, therefore I have spoken, and you got to look at that verse or those verses pretty clearly because it's a little bit challenging to see it. But when it says in that psalm in the Old Testament, I believe, therefore I have spoken, it doesn't come from a place of, oh, everything's perfect. Everything's great. I just want a million dollars. My wife is so in love with me and she is willing to serve me every perfect way. We have a wonderful marriage. My kids are doing everything right. This comes from a person, it's probably David, we're not sure. David just had his son try to kill him. If you know anything about David's marriage, is not good. This is a guy who's in the midst of pain, and yet he is willing to say, in the midst of his despair, I believe. That's good. But then he does something else and says, I believe, therefore I will speak. I will share. I will show the world Jesus Because the one who has been with me in my hardest of hard times is someone worth telling, something worth telling to the world around me. I believe means I am willing to speak. Otherwise, we're just putting the stopper into the jars of clay, friends. And if you just hold something in the jar of clay and never use it, then all you are is grace storage. Do you want to be grace storage? It means you're the thumb drive that never gets taken out and used. It means that there is something that you're on a shelf. Grace storage is really not what the kingdom of God calls us to. Amen? We are called to a deeper level of engagement in the kingdom. God wants us to have more faith and be willing to speak of what we know. Let's finish the text, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen is eternal. Friends, um, our world is a hard place to live sometimes, amen? 
We got garbage around us pretty much all the time. All you have to do is turn on the television. We have strife. Well, there's beautiful things too. There's lots of, of, of good things in the world, but there is a lot of stuff that if you really dig into it, it is really easy to feel a level of despair. And if you're, it's not even about the world, sometimes it's all you have to do is exist. And, and someone who lo- you love dies, Billy. That's despair. And it comes, and you can't avoid it. And it, and it hurts when it comes. But here's the thing. Even though we live in that world, that world is always framed in this way. It's framed through a six-hour lens, a six-hour movie. And I mean that very specifically. It's six hours. For six hours, this happened. For six hours... Blood flood flowed here and here. For six hours, blood flowed there. For six hours, a crown of, crown of thorns was here. For six hours, the bruises were beheld by all. For six hours, the jeers came from the soldiers and the people around the cross. For six hours, and that's only in human visible terms, the unseen was much more painful. The spiritual conflict happening in those six hours was the the ruler of the earth, Satan, fighting against the ruler of heaven. And it was an unfair battle. Because certainly it was one that was won by God. But each one of the blows that were struck were struck in the body of Jesus Christ. Each sin, each brokenness, each addiction that you and I carry. Each one that you and I have in our lives. And if you know, you know, if you started making a list, there's not enough paper in this room for how it is that you brought the pain to Jesus on the cross for that six hours. And that six hours in earthly time. Who knew, who knows what it was in heavenly time? Was it, was it a thousand existences of Christ? Was it Christ stepping into all of our lives for the fullness of it and living into the sin that we've known in our lives and saying, I am willing to take it on myself, the innocent one, the son of God, the the perfect one, the lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. I am willing to live into your life to take upon myself the judgment from God for all of your sin. For six hours in earthly time, who knows how long in the other realm, Christ was willing to take that pain for you. So in those moments of despair, you know he loves you. He is with you. 
His strength is sufficient for you. Despite the fact that you are a jar of clay, I am a jar of clay with cracks and brokenness, chips off the edge. Sometimes I wonder if I'm good for anything. But Christ has said, because I love you, you are worth all this. Now go and tell people about what all this is. pray with me. Living God, hope of the world through Jesus Christ, we praise you for those six hours. In fact, we praise you for life, a life that you lived for us, became one of us, tabernacled, dwelt among us so that we might know life. We thank you, Father, that you meet us in our moments of despair. And when we hear those words that you uttered in that space on the cross, it is finished. You were saying, my work of redeeming all the brokenness is done. My work of taking upon myself the sins of the world, my work of atonement, my work of sacrifice is done. It is finished. Lord, may we hear that in our moments of despair, in our moments of brokenness, in our moments of fear or doubt, discouragement. May we then trust, Father, if your work has been completed of of, of redeeming us, then that we are a part of that work in redeeming the world around you. We are part of the kingdom that goes out into this world with these jars of clay that you've given to us to speak your hope and speak your truth because we love others enough to share the love that you have for us. Praise you, God, for that ministry, that ministry of reconciliation, that ministry of hope, that ministry of life. Equip us to that now in this week ahead, especially this week as we think of those folks who on Easter go to church because mom asked them to go or go to church because a neighbor asked them to go. Can we, Father, if it be your will, be vessels of your grace and your love in the lives of unbelievers in such a way that you might call them to relationship with you? If it be your will, we ask that you do that in us. Give us words. Give us actions. Most of all, Lord, give us courage to speak. To speak because, Lord, you are with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You'll never let us go. And when we speak in willingness to serve you, it's you who speak through us. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can you please stand?